listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Luke twenty two fifty four. This is our one hundredth message together through the Gospel of Luke. Can you believe that? One hundred messages preaching through, teaching through the entire Gospel of Luke, verse by verse. Here we are, Luke chapter twenty two, beginning in verse fifty four. Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And when we read the other gospel accounts, they recognize his accent that gives him away. Kind of like if you're from New York or New Jersey, you speak in a certain way. Galileans had a certain way that they spoke. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him blaspheming him. There's a tremendous irony taking place at the end there where the true prophet is being mocked. Here is the prophet of prophets, Jesus, who knew exactly what was going on, had put himself in harm's way because that was exactly the reason he was born, and they didn't understand this while it was taking place. Now, the other irony that's taking place here is that while Jesus is being treated in a very cold and calloused way, Peter is warming himself by the fire. See, here's the situation. They go to the high priest's house. John chapter 18 says that they take him to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest who was Caiaphas. And the situation would have been that this is at night and it was pretty chilly, cool during that time of the year when this took place. And there was a courtyard. So you can imagine it this way, a common area where other doorways would open into that common area that was shared. And in the center is a fire, a fire pit that people would gather around. Maybe they would converse. They would have discussions together. And so you can imagine that Peter is in that courtyard with other people. It's cold outside. It's cold where they are. It's chilly. And nearby is the high priest's house, Caiaphas. And Jesus has been taken there. Now, this is amazing because we're seeing a reversal, humanly speaking. It's always important to understand, humanly speaking, we're seeing a reversal 
in the ministry of Jesus. So many times before, he had eluded his captors, those who wanted to capture him. So many times before, he had won up them, turned the tables on them repeatedly. Jesus had now a three-year or so track record of being able to turn the tables, stupefy the stupefiers, and get the last word in. Now Jesus had been taken away. Peter had never seen that before. The apostles had never seen that before. And Jesus actually had seen, in a predictive sense, as a prophet, the reversal of Peter. But now Peter's reversal is actually unfolding in the here and now. And so we're seeing two things take place. We're seeing Jesus' ministry dramatically change. He allows himself to be taken captive they begin to beat him and mock him and spit upon him and blaspheme against him. That had never happened before in the ministry of Jesus. And if you were walking with Jesus and had spent time with him and were called by Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, you might definitely have difficulty with this turning of events. So before we're too harsh on Peter, let's understand the context of what Peter was facing on top of the reality that he was facing diabolical, devilish, satanic temptation. Remember earlier, Jesus tells him, in keeping with being a true prophet, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Satan has asked to sift every one of you who has followed me, who I've poured myself into, but I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Now, it's interesting what Jesus reveals to Peter in that section. Look with me. Just turn back to Luke chapter 22 and look closely at what Jesus reveals to Peter in Luke 22, verse 31. When you read the Bible, please use your brain. <laughs> when you read the Bible, please think deeply. All right? We're living in a society where people don't want to think deeply anymore. It's as if thinking hurts. No, what hurts is not thinking. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, stomping his foot like a spoiled brat, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, not that you would avoid his sifting, but that your faith would not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is praying in such a way, or Jesus is revealing the nature of his prayer, the focus of his prayer, that helps us understand the sovereignty of God, that even by the activity of Satan, even through what Satan endeavors to do, God remains sovereign. God's kingdom agenda is actually being accomplished through the devilish, dark, dastardly deeds of the devil in his temptation of Peter. And when you really think about what's happening in this passage, you begin to understand that it was necessary, it was essential. Peter demonstrates very quickly that he is willing to put himself in harm's way. He's the one that takes out the sword and chops off Malchus, the servant of the high priest, his ear. He's willing to go and endanger himself for the sake of his friend, his master, his savior, his Lord Jesus. But what seems to be necessary here is for Jesus to go it alone. 
And in order for Jesus to go it alone, all of those closest to Jesus have to be taken out of the equation. They had witnessed Jesus as prophet, the ability to predict the future, even as recently as what we just read. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. They had seen Jesus predict the future and understand the thoughts and the motives of people's hearts in the past. So Jesus was clearly understood as a prophet and, by the way, in fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18 on your own time. Think as you read it where the Israelites are promised to have a prophet like Moses. Jesus is that prophet. This is why the book of Hebrews written to the Jews about the Hebrew of Hebrews, Jesus, is so important because he compares Jesus to Moses, superior to Moses, that Jesus is the prophet spoken of in the Old Testament. So they had seen Jesus as prophet, and they had seen Jesus as priest as recently as Jesus saying, but I have prayed for you. They had seen Jesus as prophet, They're beginning to understand Jesus as priest, the intercessor, the mediator between God and man. The book of Hebrews, again, if you're looking for something to meditate on and examine in your private devotional life, your private time with God, the book of Hebrews is a great book to really meditate on and chew on and think about to understand the identity of Jesus and what that means for you. So they had seen Jesus as prophet, They're beginning to understand and see the ministry of Jesus as priest, but they have not yet experienced Jesus as Savior. And this is the transition that's taking place. Their understanding of the Messiah, of the Deliverer, was different than the way things pan out here, the way they begin to transition. They had not yet seen Jesus as Savior. And this is the whole purpose and the whole point of Jesus' ministry. If Jesus was just a prophet and just a priest, but not Savior, we would all still be dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, dead in our offenses before God. That's what sin is. Every single one of us has sinned by the things we've done that we shouldn't have done, sins of commission, and the things we have not done that we should have done, sins of omission. Every single one of us is in need of a Savior. And what is necessary now is for the perfect, strong, undefeatable Son of the living God to intervene and to step in where you and I are weak and imperfect. That, by definition, is what it means for Jesus to be Savior. You're weak, I'm weak. You're imperfect, I'm imperfect. Jesus is strong, Jesus is perfect, and now they need to see Jesus as Savior in a way they had never seen Jesus as Savior before. And what becomes necessary in this whole situation, they didn't understand it then. We kind of understand it now to a certain degree. Jesus had to walk this road all by himself. And Peter gives in to peer pressure Not once, not twice, but three times, and we'll look at the extent of that in just a moment. 
He totally caves, but he doesn't lose his faith. He's embarrassed. He's fearful of his life. This is the exact opposite of what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. Now he's denying his Lord. This is a very clear contrast, and you've probably done it in your own life. I know that I've done it in my life. I wish I could go back in certain circumstances and instances and have a witness for Christ that I didn't have at the moment because I was concerned about me, myself, and I. I was fearful for my own comfort, fearful for my own reputation, and whenever you are more concerned about your own reputation and your own comfort than the glory of God, you too will do what Peter did. But Peter did not lose his faith. He just lost his courage. He lost his courage. And I want to suggest to you the very real possibility that it was God allowing the devil an opportunity to take Peter out of the equation so that neither Peter nor any of the other disciples could interfere with the necessity of Jesus now walking this road all by himself the way he needed to walk it all by himself because he alone was and he alone is the Savior. Nobody else could do what only Jesus could do and needed to do. He didn't need any help, didn't want any help. No mere mortal was needed to help the immortal. And it was essential for now Peter and the other disciples to see Jesus as Savior. And in particular, the suffering Savior. We get the imagery very clearly that we get it, don't we? Peter's weak, Peter's frail, Peter's imperfect, Peter is given to not make the right decision when he should. And yet we see the sovereignty of God through it all, ensuring that his plan, his purpose is fulfilled. I can't get my brain wrapped around that. Can you? And yet it's true. Only Jesus is strong. Only Jesus is perfect. You're not, I'm not, and even those who were with him in his physical presence for about three years' time, who saw miracles that you and I simply read about, who heard the teachings of Jesus that you and I dream about, to hear the voice of Jesus, the truth is that you would have done the same thing that Peter did. In fact, you have done, most likely, and if you're a new believer, if you're new in Christ, get over it. There will come a time when your courage will get cooked in the squat and you will be concerned about me, myself, and I rather than the glory of God. You'll have a faith crisis and you'll be humbled and you'll be broken. And when you turn back to the Lord and ask him for forgiveness, you will then appreciate how weak you are and how strong he is and how perfect he is in the midst of your imperfection. And so through what is happening in this transition, we are seeing Jesus as Savior, taking on the mantle that only he could carry, doing what only he could do, pay for your sin and for mine. It was Peter's weakness and Peter's imperfection that made this scene necessary. It's your weakness and mine and your imperfection and mine 
that made this scene and this transition necessary. Now let's take a look at how Peter so thoroughly denies Jesus. Look at verses 56 through 60. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter denies knowing Jesus. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them, one of the disciples. But Peter said, man, I am not. Peter denies being a disciple. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, we'll get there in just a minute. Look with me at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Peter denies his spiritual roots, how it all began when he became a disciple. You can't get much more thorough than what Peter has done. Peter denies knowing Jesus. Peter denies knowing the disciples. Peter denies the roots of his calling because it was in Galilee where this transpired in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Becomes very important when we see how Peter responds to the accusation, which is actually an observation, that he was identified with Jesus. Fishermen don't have the greatest reputation when it comes to the words that come out of their mouths. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And so what we're seeing in the threefold denial of Peter is that he denies Jesus, he denies the other followers of Jesus, the disciples, he denies being one, and he denies even this significant calling on his life. Surely Peter was indeed a Galilean. For Pete's sake, literally speaking, that's where he received his calling from Jesus. You can't get much more thorough than this type of a denial. Now, it's interesting what happens here. When the rooster crows in verse 60, we read what follows in verse 61. And this is important to understand. In the context of the courtyard and the historical reality, Jesus is apparently within earshot to hear Peter's piercing words. Here's somebody that Jesus has poured into for about three years' time. Jesus knows what's on the horizon for Peter. Jesus has selflessly given himself to Peter and the other apostles. Judas has come out and been a backstabber. Now Peter is stabbing Jesus in the back, not once or twice, but three times. Total 
total denial. And so when you think about that fire where Peter and the others are warming themselves and that it's a courtyard, a common area where others could come into and talk and share that fire together, the indication is that Jesus is within earshot to hear the fateful words of Peter, at least that third time, because when Jesus hears it, he turns and looks right at him. Now, if looks could kill, that might be one of them. Unless Jesus looked lovingly with deep concern at Peter. And this is where we understand the dark road that only Jesus could go on by himself. And now he's going to demonstrate that he is the Savior and that no mere mortal can travel this road with him. It was for that rejection that Jesus died. Lovingly, with compassion and concern, Jesus looked straight at him. Was within earshot of Peter's faithful words. And we begin to understand, if we take the other gospel accounts of Peter's denial, what was going through Peter's mind and what was coming out of Peter's mouth. Look with me at Mark chapter 14, just as an example. In verse 71 and verse 72 of Mark's gospel, chapter 14. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. There's the fisherman in Peter. Everything has unraveled. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Now this becomes incredibly fascinating because Peter seems to have had time to reverse his denials. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And after thinking about it, he broke down and wept. That could be another translation for what is said here at the end of verse 72 when it says that he broke down and wept. It could easily be translated, and when he had thought about it, he wept. Thought about what? Thought about Jesus' words. Listen, before the rooster crows twice. See, I grew up on a farm. Many of you still live on farms. You grew up on a farm. You know that a rooster doesn't just cock-a-doodle-doo once in the morning and once in the evening. Roosters seem to have an innate snooze button. They cock-a-doodle-doo in the morning, all through the morning. And they even, when they get confused, they cock-a-doodle-doo lunchtime. And they cock-a-doodle-doo in the afternoon, and they cock-a-doodle-doo in the evening, pretty much depending on how intelligent your rooster is. Your rooster will cock-a-doodle-doo whenever he well pleases. It's going to happen more than once. And so Jesus tells Peter, before the rooster crows twice... You're going to deny me three times. And then we get to this passage in Luke chapter 22 in verse 59. And after an interval 
of about an hour, still another insisted. So two denials have come, and then about an hour passes. Peter has had time to warm himself while something has happened in his heart. He's become cold instead of being courageous. And while Jesus is being treated with tremendous coldness, he's warming himself by the fire with plenty of time to contemplate his actions, and yet he doesn't get his act together. And yet God Almighty is not in any way, shape, or form hindered from calling this same Peter to be a leader within the church, that it is this guy who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches a sermon that if it was possible would make Jesus jealous. 3,000 people get saved in one message from this guy? And you're taking yourself out of the equation in terms of God's plan and agenda? Why are you doing that? I'm speaking to you. Because God's speaking to you. Why in the world would you take yourself out of the kingdom agenda of God when a guy like Peter was not removed from the kingdom agenda of God? It's not about what you do and what you don't do. It's about what God does through you despite you. That's the story of a believer. So Peter has had a lot of time to contemplate his actions. You have time to contemplate your actions when you say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, think about things you shouldn't think when there's a relationship issue or when there's a issue where God is speaking to you about. You've got time to contemplate, and you and I, sometimes we don't make the right choice, but the sovereign agenda of God advances despite us. Aren't you glad that that's the case? This is the whole idea of God being the perfect Savior. This is why we needed and need a perfect Savior, because we are imperfect. This is why God needs to show himself strong, and God does show himself strong, in the midst of our weaknesses. And every single one of us wants, needs, craves, appreciates that we can be and that we are forgiven the way Peter was forgiven. We all want that. We all love that. We all embrace that. We all breathe a sigh of relief that God is perfect in the midst of our imperfections, that God is strong in the midst of our weaknesses. We all love that. We all appreciate that. And we all, in the course of appreciating that, and appreciating God, don't realize that we make the gospel the great news. Gospel means good news. We make it so personal that we don't even realize we make it about me, myself, and I. We make it about ourselves. We all want the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, poured out lavishly on us. Oh, pour it on, Jesus. And yet, when it comes to forgiving somebody else, it seems like forgiveness is so short in supply. I want you to think. God wants you to think. Everybody knew about Peter's denial. It's recorded in all of the Gospels. Peter is the guy at the opportune moment who's got the thickest head, so it seems, of all the disciples. No, he just has a thick head like a disciple does. And you're one of them if you're a Christ follower. He's told ahead of time, 
the rooster is going to crow. And before the rooster crows second time, you're going to deny me three times. He's warned ahead of time. It's taking place over time. An hour passes, and yet Peter still does it. He denies Jesus. Everybody knew about Peter's denial. If you're a Christian for any length of time, you know about Peter's denial. And you know what? People also knew about Peter's repentance. They also knew about his remorse. And after he had thought about it, he wept bitterly. Have you ever seen a grown man sob? I mean, really cry because they are absolutely beside themselves. To be told ahead of time, this is what you're going to do, and this is how you're going to do it. And to be told ahead of time, but I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. For a man who had such resolve to be a perfect man, Peter needed to understand his imperfection, otherwise he would have never seen his need for a perfect Savior. And that's what keeps many people from accepting Jesus as their Savior and their God. They either think they're perfect or think they need to be perfect, when nothing could be further from the truth. Take it from Peter. Everybody knew about Peter's denial of Jesus and everybody knew about Peter's remorse. He wept bitterly, embraced his failure, took ownership for his failure. See, it's very easy to look at what happened to Peter and to identify on a personal level, God forgives me completely and totally. God knows what I'm going to do even before I've done it, and yet Jesus died on the cross before those things happened. But the truth of the matter is, the same thing is true for every other Christ follower in your life. We're all in that same situation. And in the same way that we want to receive the grace of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, and we're very quick to embrace that, we need to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of a disciple in that day and understand by asking this question, would you receive Peter as the leader of a movement in light of what he just did? Would you forgive this kind of a guy? Somebody would. Would you forgive this kind of a guy after that type of denial? He seems to display a lack of leadership capability, a lack of thinking clearly, a lack of self-control, a lack of getting it, a lack of courage, all the things that you would want to see in a leader of a movement that's going to change the world. Peter does not demonstrate. He does not exhibit. Except this. Peter takes ownership for his sin. That's why he wept bitterly. One of the greatest needs in the body of Christ is for you and for me, for Christ followers, to take ownership for their sin. The lack of taking ownership for our own sin is one of the main reasons why we have problems in our marriages. When your spouse says, I was wrong, you need to forgive and to release them. Or when your spouse comes to you and says, you were wrong, 
the typical response, the me, myself, and I response is, well, yeah, but, or stop getting on my case for whatever it might be, when the real, godly, biblical, humble response is, you're right and I'm wrong. Don't you think that would absolutely revolutionize a marriage? Actually, might save a marriage. Nine out of ten problems in a marriage are due to a lack of humility on the part of one or both parties. And at the rate we're going, the way marriage is continually being redefined, one of three or four or five or six parties. You watch, marriage will be redefined again and again and again unless things are reversed. Everybody knew about Peter's denial. Everybody knew about Peter's remorse. And my goodness, what a revolution we'd see in the body of Christ if we would take ownership for our own sin and say, that's right, I'm wrong. That's right, I'm wrong. That's right, I'm wrong. Humility is agreeing with God about what he already knows. And so it does not matter who the messenger is. What matters is the message delivered by the messenger. And one of the primary messengers that God has placed in your life if you're married is your spouse to help smooth out the rough edges courtesy of something other than humility. You don't have to be married to understand that. It's the course of relationships. Life is relationships. Everything we do in life eventually makes its way into the public arena of our lives where we're interacting with people. You can have a desk job, a computer job, and sit behind that computer, sit at your desk all day long, but eventually, in some way, some capacity, you're going to have some interaction with another human being. It's going to happen. All of life is relationships. And I wonder what might happen in your life. I wonder what might happen in the body of Christ if we began to forgive people, if we began to release people for holding us in prison because of our lack of forgiveness and welcome people back who are genuinely sorry, genuinely repentant. It's absolutely imperative. Everybody knew about Peter's denial. Everybody knew about Peter's brokenness. And he's the one that God raises up imperfections at all because of the perfect Savior to be the leader of that movement. And so you need to do this in your own life. I need to do this in my life. We all need to do it if we're Christ followers. Get beyond the me, myself, and I understanding of what happened to Peter and put yourself in a position of being one of the followers of this Peter who would be raised up by God to be the leader. Would you forgive him? You know how you can tell? Look at the relationships that you're in now, or I should say, out of now. The ways in which you have treated other people who have sinned against you, sinned against others, is the statement of whether or not you really would forgive Peter for what he did. Whether or not you really would follow Peter after what he did. Look at the relationships that you're in. Look at the relationships that you're out of. Do you exercise the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that you want to receive so freely from God when it comes to demonstrating it 
in other people, to err is human, to forgive is divine. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm-hmm.